1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll look at uh, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 on the subject of categorized humanity. And I will be happy to take questions uh, at the uh, end if you have any, okay? Usually you all behave pretty good and don't have any. But uh, I, do, um, I do like to take questions, um, all seriousness aside. Uh, I do like to uh, take questions. In fact, my last pastorate, I would uh, take them about once a quarter on Sunday evening in our service there, and it was um, always fruitful um, until someone tried to stump me. Uh, and then it got outrageously funny because I would just come back at them. But anyway, um, categorized humanity. Classification shapes much of our lives. And classification is not always flattering, uh, but it can be very helpful. Someone came to R.G. Lee, uh, the pastor who preceded uh, Adrian Rogers at Bellevue Baptist, uh, and actually there was someone between the two of them, and they said to Dr. Lee, they said, I didn't like that sermon. He said, well, the devil didn't either classify yourself. <laughs> Dr. Lee could be a little prickly in a sanctified way. Um, if you're classified as sick, you need a doctor or treatment, hospitalization or medication. If you're classified a criminal, uh, you need a jail. And in most places, you'll get it. If you're classified a prince, you need a throne. Uh, classification shapes much of our lives. And in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, uh, the Apostle Paul classified humanity, all of humanity, in a couple uh, actually three categories, beginning in verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food. For until now you're not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able, for you're still carnal. For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving as mere men? For when one says, I'm a Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? Paul classifies, interestingly enough, the whole world in relationship to the Holy Spirit. Now, there are other places in the New Testament that classify folks according to their relationship with uh, Jesus Christ. But here, he's classifying the whole world in relationship to the Holy Spirit. And there are several classifications. First, there's the natural person or the natural people. Verse 14 says, uh, chapter 2, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. This is the natural person, and the natural person is merely what he or she was at birth and does not have a saving or sanctifying relationship with the Holy Spirit. There are several things to say 
about this person. One, obviously this person was born physically, but that has ramifications. That means he or she is a son or daughter of Adam and Eve. And this person may display wit, may display intelligence, uh, morality, and culture, but is still dead in trespasses and sin. The spirit and soul of this person is a corpse, make no mistake about it, and relates to the Holy Spirit the same way a corpse relates to the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all die. And then this person is blind spiritually. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Now God has accessible to his children a library, and he is selective about who gets in. And that happens to be his children. And they can access this library that embodies the mind of God. Now, the Bible is a, book, a library of 66 books. But within the boundaries of the Bible, there is the knowledge of God that he applies to the decisions we make and our evaluations. And Paul will reference that in verse 15, the judgments that we make. Uh, there are many things the Bible does not address, but there are principles uh, that guide us. And under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, we can make godly decisions. Well, this is what I mean by the library of the knowledge of God. That would include who am I to marry? Well, the Bible doesn't tell you, except in broad categories, who to marry and who's excluded. I remember when I was a teenager, they used to teach us about dating. And about all we got was, don't date a non-Christian. Well, there was only one you know, just a handful of girls in our youth group, and that's just, and back then we let people date in youth groups. We don't do that much anymore, and that's probably very wise. But uh, the truth is, is that, um, you know, it, it really wasn't hard to figure out who to date. But then I went to a Baptist college, and there were 400 of them. Well, what in the world do you do with that? You can't date them all. I tried, but it didn't work, and it's very expensive. And, uh,. <laughs> I needed more guidance. I needed more direction. I needed God to direct me with what to do. And about eight years later, he did. But the Bible doesn't say that. You need the leadership of the Spirit. Uh, how am I to spend my life? What vocation? Um, and, and a variety of other things. If you're investing, you need to know about that. If you have the opportunity for a job change, you need to look into that. Well, that library is available to the children of God, but it's not available to the natural man. This is knowledge he has never, ever experienced and can't even access. And most, or many of them at least, will scoff at the mere idea that there is such a library. In fact, this person does not receive receive the things of the Spirit. In other words, this person does not welcome the knowledge of God as a guest or a family member, but at best as a door-to-door -door salesman or even an intruder, which explains a lot of atheism, by the way. The knowledge of God is an intruder for many. Now, I want you to be careful here and understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. This person does not access the things or the mind of the Spirit. I'm not saying this person fails to be religious. The Corinthians, those in Corinth, were wildly religious. And there are some today that live in the trajectory of the Corinthian religion with New Testament terminology. And Paul will bust that loose in chapter 12, 13, and 14. That mixture of these things. 
So I'm not saying that they're not religious. What I'm saying is, is that they've never been born again and accessed the library of the Spirit. Nicodemus is one such person. In fact, I'll tell you, if Nicodemus showed up in most churches, 10 minutes, most Baptist churches would make him a deacon and Sunday school teacher. And he wasn't born again. He'd never been touched by the Spirit of God in salvation. This person is also biased wickedly. Natural persons are subject to the natural inborn evil bias of the soul to God. And that's what the Bible teaches. It is a myth, a pernicious myth, a frustrating myth, an unrealistic myth to say that children are wet cement. Just waiting for parents to shape them entirely and completely. Now, parents can do that, and there's an awful lot that parents and others can do. But there are already some things hardened in infants the moment they're born. And that's the sin nature. In Adam, all died. Now, um, let me ask you, did you ever have to teach your children to lie or to bite each other or to take one another's things? Or did it come kind of naturally? What did you have to teach your children? You had to teach them to not lie, but tell the truth. You had to teach your children, um, uh, you didn't have to teach them, uh, you, you didn't have to teach them to bite each other, you had to teach them what? Keep their teeth into themselves, right? And, and then you had to teach your children not to take things from other children, but to share. All right. In other words, holiness and godliness does not come natural to children. They've got to be taught and they've got to be instructed. And without conversion, they struggle with it. Even the most compliant children do. And, and that's what uh, Romans 5 is all about. That is inborn. There is an evil bias in the soul of every person. And Jesus said, that's true. Mark chapter 7, verse 20 through 23, he lists off a large number of sins and say they come from the heart. So these little children, they're not little innocent things. They are barbarians from birth. They do not receive the things of the Spirit. And Paul says, nor can they. Outside the intervention of the Spirit, the natural person cannot embrace truth, right, or holiness. And so to fuss at a natural person for not embracing holiness and truth is like fussing at a blind man for not seeing or an amputee for not running a 5K. See, Now let me ask you this. Let's imagine that you find a lost person who is open to the truth. Do you know we have anywhere from 20 to 50 guests every Sunday? Uh, since January, from January to I guess about August, it was between 20 and 30. And since August, it's bumped up over 30. I quit counting at 35 last Sunday. A couple Sundays ago, I quit counting at 50. I think some of those are probably um, uh, Christians. Um, uh, the way some squirm during the invitation, probably not. Uh, maybe not, I, I can't judge, but just experience um, and all. Let, let me ask you this. If, if what the text says about the natural man is true, how do you explain then interest in the things of God? And they keep coming back. You know, one of the remarkable things I found in doing door-to-door -door evangelism, a couple of things. About every fourth, every other home, somebody would be home, and every fourth home, they'd answer. Okay, so the one that was home that didn't answer wasn't interested. We didn't have to spend time on them, we, but we did get to take more time with the fourth one because the other ones didn't answer, okay? 
And here's what I found consistently over and over and over again. They were either reading the Bible or listening to Dr. Stanley or Adrian Rogers. Constantly and consistently. Now, if the natural man is hostile to God, thinks that they're foolish, and you find a lost person who is interested in the things of God, what, what are you witnessing? What, what, what are you witnessing? What do you witness whenever you see a lost person interested in the things of God? Is it natural? No, it's not natural. It's what? Supernatural. And someone said you're witnessing a miracle. You're witnessing the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why you give attention to that kind of thing when you see someone like that. That's why we've got to be the warmest, most embracing church in all the world because God is doing a work every time you see a lost person interested in the things of God. Listen, biblically, uh, if I use the phraseology of Romans 5, what you're watching is that you're watching a dead person come to life. You say you've never seen erection. Oh, yes, you have. You've seen resurrection. And, and what you find there in that lost person is a quickening of the Spirit. So the natural person then eliminates God's presence, which is the theme of our study. But second, there is the spiritual person. Verses 12 through uh, 16. The spiritual person has a life, mind, and independence wrapped up and shaped by the Holy Spirit. There is, first of all, life. The Holy Spirit has made this believer alive. This person actually has the life of Christ in him or her. The life that Jesus now enjoys is pulsating and present in the life of a child of God. And that's why Paul can make the large, almost unbelievable statement that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. See, when you come to Christ, you not only come into the life of Christ, Christ comes into your life. And Christ not only comes into your life, but you come into his as well. There is a merging and a unity that takes place between Jesus Christ and the believer. There is a tightness that is there. And because of that, uh, the life of Christ can be manifested through anyone who knows the Lord Jesus. So these people then live not only a changed life, they live an exchanged life. Now they're changed because they've taken their guilt and their filth and their nastiness and exchanged it for Jesus' righteousness and life and his character. And Jesus has graciously given it to them. And so that's why I say when, when I, I get real worried about religious people who've never changed and with good cause. So these people live not only a changed life, but an exchanged life. So the, Adrian Rogers said, the spiritual person is not merely a nice character, but a new creature. See, And, and I want to just clarify, in case there's any misunderstanding here, that Jesus Christ did not come to make bad people good, but to make dead people live. That's what Christ does in a heart in life. So there's life there. Then there is something of the mind shaped by Christ. Verses 13 through 16. God has given us again access to the mind of Christ. And, and Paul said, this is how we teach in verse 13. He said, and there, there are a variety of translations here. And why the translators are confused by verse 13 in chapter 2, I don't know. The English Standard Version and the Revised Standard Version have it, um, have it best. I wasn't a big fan of the Revised Standard Version as an aside. The ESV folks greatly improved it, and I'm grateful for that. But verse 13 says, And we impart spiritual truths and words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those 
who are spiritual. Now, we may teach truth, but only the Spirit can impart truth. Only He can make it quicken to the soul, and He graciously, generously does that, and does it constantly as far more expansive and eager to do that than what we might be able to imagine. And let me, let me just chase that rabbit for a minute. I was leading an evangelism conference years ago in South Georgia at a church, and I was uh, encouraging the people, I was training them how to do personal evangelism, and uh, was um, uh, encouraging them to be really optimistic about the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. And then one fellow said, yeah, all that's good, but no one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. And that guy just took a big old bucket of cold water and threw it on the whole congregation, thoroughly misunderstanding that text. That text has been used often to throw, John 6, 44 and 45, has been used often to throw cold water on evangelism. It's not meant to douse it, it's meant to inflame it. Because the theology of the draw in the Gospel of John not only says no one can come to uh, me unless the Father draws him. Draws him, that's the key word. But in John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said, and if I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. It's true, you've got to be drawn by the Spirit, but he's been drawing everybody since Jesus was lifted up. So you and I have got to be more eager, more optimistic, more full of faith about the work of the Holy Spirit and not be hesitant to approach people about Christ because God is doing a large, expansive work. In fact, he can say about the Holy Spirit in John 16, uh, verses 8 through 11, when the Holy Spirit comes, he shall convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But here's what he said. He shall convict not the individual, just a few select individuals. He said he would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The whole world that lies under the condemnation of God. He is in the process of convicting them all all over the globe. And so you don't find anyone that isn't an object of the love of God or the conviction of the Spirit or the drawing power of the cross. Hey, listen, the, the woods are full of people that God is dealing with by the Holy Spirit. Go get you some. You see? And so that's how we're to be when it comes to approaching people for Christ. You're going to meet somebody the Spirit is dealing with. So th this is the mind of the Spirit. Paul is teaching here, we interpret spiritual truths to spiritual, to, to spiritual people. And so there is an additional insight. There's evidence that the children of God have been in the library of the Spirit in their lives. In other words, spiritual speak people speak as if they've heard directly from Jesus Christ, because they have. They make decisions as if he discussed with them the issues. And they think about these issues as if they heard him discuss them. They have a walk with him that is very similar and at least equal to the walk that Peter, James, and John had with him, even the experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. In fact, Peter will go on in 2 Peter chapter 1 and say, our current walk with him is even more sure and certain than what we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and so the children of God today are not of a second-class variety compared to the apostles of the first century. We've actually moved on and beyond that because we have an entire Bible and we've got the Spirit within us. So there's a life and a mind shaped by the Spirit, but then there's an independence, and specifically an independence from being bound to the world's judgments. Spiritual people do care uh, about uh, their effect on others, and they care about their reputation and the social and public ramifications of their decisions, but they aren't bound by them. 
they aren't bound by them. You get a church full of lost people and you'll find that um, they'll try to tone down the pastor from preaching the scripture. He'll be terribly persecuted by them. You get nasty letters and nasty emails. I've not received many in my life, but I have friends who have. Uh, I had one pastor friend before the days of email that used to get nasty letters from his congregation and he wouldn't read them. They weren't signed. And, but he would keep them. And one Sunday he preached on forgiveness and releasing bitterness to God and he brought that box out. And he told the story of how since he had been there, he had received all sorts of ugly letters and things. And he opened up that box and poured it all out on the Lord's Supper table and it covered the entire top of it. That's what lost people will do. One of the best pastors I know. And, and I'm grateful I haven't been uh, the victim of an awful lot of that, but Bobby sure was. So we do care what people think, but we're not bound by it. Uh, we, we do not avoid obedience because of the fallout of our decisions. We do not dismiss God's will for fear of social snubbing. That's the spiritual person. These people get a hold of a word from God and do it even if they su suspect that unspiritual people will judge them. Now this doesn't justify abrasiveness or rudeness, of course, but it does underscore that these spiritual people have bound themselves to the Lord and the world's judgments are a small matter. They're kept in proper perspective. They don't melt down and fret over obedience to God because it may lead to social snubbing. That's the spiritual person. So spiritual persons concern themselves with a realm of knowledge and reason not available to natural people. And so for this reason, to the natural person, this person may appear to be foolish at times. Paul said, in fact, before the world, God has set us up as a spectacle or as a laughingstock. Someone on stage in ancient Greek plays that would be the jester, the jokester, the odd person in a particular dramatic production. He said, sometimes we feel God set us up that way. But spiritual persons will enjoy God's presence. Natural persons eliminate it. But then there's the carnal person. Verses 1 through 4. Carnal people once were spiritual. Carnal people were Christians, are Christians, who once were spiritual. Still saved, but uh, so as through fire, Paul will later say in 1 Corinthians 3, saved, but now operate by their inborn evil bias, by their appetites of their sinful nature, by their impulses of the sin sinful nature. And this um, evil impulse does manifest itself through desires and impulses. Uh, carnal Christians then are delayed, delayed in their development. Now everyone loves a baby unless that baby is five or six years old, an adolescent or a child. Dads like to be called dad-da, but would be horrified if a 15-year-old did it. See, There's the expectation that with time, the baby will become a toddler, and the toddler will become a child, and the child will become a preteen, and the preteen will become an adolescent. The adolescent will become an adult, and the adult will mature and continue to grow. If you've got someone that's been around for years and decades, and that person's still a baby, you've got an awful lot of reason to be concerned. And there is a great need for um, uh, tests and exams and um, probably therapies as well. A lot of Christians like that. There are some that have known the Lord for a year and are wiser than their teachers. 
There are some that have been around for decades and hadn't listened to a thing a teacher said at all. And that's what Paul's complaining about. Chapter 3, verse 1, he said, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal. Well, what does that mean? As to babes in Christ. You're babies. Then, carnal Christians are also dependent. Uh, babes, infants, need someone to feed them. And carnal Christians are like babes, and so they need someone else's spiritual production to feed them. So they rely an awful lot on books and other people's sermons, and that's okay as a supplement. But they, they do not have the ability to go before God and access God in His mind and God's own soul directly through His Word. They don't have that ability. In fact, when it's declared, when they're, they'd rather not pay attention to it. Then carnal Christians are also divisive, verses 3 and 4. For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? See, they had not accessed God through his word. They had only accessed God through Paul and Apollos. And so they congregated around them and divided the congregation. Over two men that loved each other didn't have a problem with each other. But they found a way to take what Paul and Apollos taught and divide the church over it. When there was no division between Paul and Apollos. He will go later on and explain in verse 5, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. So carnal Christians then may provoke and become the center of controversy in marriages, in families, churches, perhaps even a workplace. Uh, they get so hardened in their positions that they do not hear and discern God's will in someone else's position. And you know, I, I think God values unity in marriages and families and churches, other places as well. And to foster that and to test people's commitment to His vision for unity, I think sometimes what God does is that when there's a problem, He'll take the solution and divide it in half and give half of it to one person and half of it to another and see if they'll pray through till they come together. See, I think that's what He does in marriages and families and churches and other places where unity is necessary and where you find Christian people who need to model unity. Now there's another thing about babies and uh, how they can be divided, divided from the very interest of God. Uh, and that is, babies are really not cognizant or aware of the large issues in life. Uh, babies right now, I can guarantee you, sweet and lovely as they are, are not thinking about what's coming up on Tuesday. Okay? They are not contemplating uh, such things as the national debt and global peace. They're not thinking about the large issues of life. Carnal Christians are like babies. And they're more concerned about what side of the worship center the organ's going to be placed or the color of the carpet or walls than they are lost people. They have had wild eruptions over things God really doesn't care about. And no tears over lost people. See, They're concerned about if their seat is available in a worship center because they're attached to it instead of pleading with God for the power of the Holy Spirit in the worship service, you see. In other words, they care about things God really doesn't care about. 
Max, that can happen in marriages too. Husbands and wives can get all tore up about things. Don't We have a rule in our house. If it doesn't bother God, it ain't going to bother you either. We don't get upset about things that don't bother God. If it bothers God, then you can give some appropriate attention to it. But if it doesn't bother God, it does not bother you. We just don't do that. We've got, we got too many things going on uh, to focus on things that God doesn't care about. So that should be true in marriages and families. It should be true in churches and other places where there is a need for unity. So let me summarize about natural people and uh, the mind of the Spirit. Natural people might want to access the mind of the Spirit, but they can't. Spiritual people can and do. Carnal people can, but won't. And consequently, carnal people end up looking like natural people. And for a time, you can't tell the difference. Ian Thomas said they live with a self-imposed poverty. And so the natural person eliminates God's presence. The spiritual person enjoys it, and the carnal misses it. Now, I want to conclude with three encouragements about walking closely in the presence of the Holy Spirit that I think will help us And they'll be real brief, and then I'll take your questions if you have any. And if you don't, then we'll pray together. Number one, to have the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit, you've got to master dependence. You've got to come and finally admit that my intelligence and my gifting and my abilities are not enough. Frankly, I'm running on empty just about all the time, even on my best days. And I have got to depend on Him. And we call that coming to the end of yourself. And I have to tell you, it's very humbling to do that as a preacher. It is. Before I walk into the worship center on Sunday mornings, just about every Sunday, I tell God, God, I've done what I can with this message. I am not satisfied with it, and I never have been, and I don't see how you can bless it. But here it is. I'm at the end. I can't do anything else. I think I've been faithful and responsible, but here it is. If anyone's going to be helped through it, you're going to have to come through. And I must say to you, and I, I, I don't mean to be falsely humble, and I'm not being humble at all, I'm just telling you the truth. I know enough about this preaching thing to know that if you've ever been blessed, it's because God has blessed you. The preacher hasn't. The second thing is transparency. You have to be entirely honest with God, completely transparent. If your heart is full of lust, tell him. If, if your mind and soul are straying from appropriate loves, tell him. He already knows, but it really helps to bear it before him. If you're tempted, tell him. If you don't like your attitude at certain times of the day, tell him. If you don't like your state or condition in life, tell him. Be entirely transparent with him. The third thing is, you're going to have to master the discipline of getting into his word. His word is the mind of the spirit. And he has an affinity for a biblical mind. And he'll come through every time if you'll do at least these three things. Do you have any questions? Any questions at all before we pray? Yes, sir. I think they'd be about the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think the backslidden Christian is probably the Old Testament phrase for the New Testament, Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament carnal Christian.
Yeah. And if you'll read through 1 Corinthians 15, you, you will, you will uh, 1 Corinthians, the whole book of 1 Corinthians, you will, um, uh, I, I think it will convince you that what you're reading is very similar uh, to the profile of the Jews who abandoned God and were called backslidden and Hosea and other places. Very similar sins. There's not, 1 Corinthians, I preached through it twice. It's the most difficult book in the Bible to preach through. I had to wade through it. I mean, these are living issues. Every passage there, and it hurts. There's not a happy place. After the first nine verses, there's not a happy place until you get the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Not a happy place at all. It's constant correction. And that reminds me of the people of Israel in the book of Hosea where backsliding backslidden is used. Yeah, it's a good question. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Lenny? What do you mean by the opportunity to believe? Well, the natural man does not accept the things of God. So the Holy Spirit's working on it's like maybe there's that, that recognition that wouldn't naturally be there that he could respond to because it still requires a response. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think some of them do. <laughs> uh, natural per- persons do. I, I would say the Spirit does both uh, of those that you mentioned. Uh, they're dead in trespasses and sins. The Holy Spirit begins to work with them. And the way Paul describes it in Ephesians 2 is that uh, he quickens them or makes them alive. And at that point, I believe they're able to repent and believe. Now, they've got to do the repenting and the believing. Uh, that's something for which they're responsible. But the Holy Spirit, having touched them, he's made them able to do so. Now, our Calvinist friends would say that happens at that moment. Uh, our Arminian friends would say that freedom was given when Jesus died on the cross, that he broke the power of Adam and all. I, I think both go too far with those notions, and I don't know if I can get that detailed and specific with it, uh, but um, uh, I, don't, I don't think the Scripture says what the Arminians have said about that uh, and all. Uh, those are some rationalistic interpretations. But um, the Holy Spirit does come upon them, and uh, makes them alive. And at that point, I think they're able to repent and believe. Does that answer the question? Yeah, good, good. Are there others? And apparently he's doing it a whole lot. That's how you came to Christ. Yeah. Yes, sir, Michael. Yeah, I wouldn't assume the Spirit is not working with them. In fact, I will say to you that when you find someone really fervent about rejecting Christ, that might be their reaction to the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, The person I get worried about is the person that has no reaction. But then it's really hard not to react. Sometimes they just have a real bland personality and they, or they're very restrained uh, and they don't show their emotions, okay? I, I didn't mean to... 
anyway, don't ask me to compare them to a fruit, all right? Anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, don't, don't ask me to do that. But uh, anyway, uh, so I wouldn't assume if there's intense rejection, there might be intense conviction. Yeah, and so, um, but always continue to pray for them and, and ask God to come through. I will tell you that Jesus did have a couple of pieces of instruction with such persons in Matthew 7, 6 and Matthew 10, 14. He said, don't give what's holy to dogs or cast your pearls before swine. When you find intense rejection, back away. Uh, and I have learned that um, I, when I met, it used to be when I was younger, when I met intense rejection, I'd start really um, penetrating with questions. Now, if I meet reasonable rejection, and it's not reasonable, but you understand what I mean, uh, a polite rejection, I start with questions. But if I meet intense, angry rejection, I used to start peppering with questions, which just made it worse. It's casting my pearls before swine. It was aggravating their heart. It was hardening them. So what I will do now is that I'll either be real silent and just look at them. Or I'll say, okay, and just move on. You know? And what that does, that, that response is exactly opposite of what they're expecting, and they start swimming in it and gives the spirit another opportunity to do that. So I don't cast my pearls before swine, I give what's holy to dogs. Uh, Matthew uh, 10, 14, Jesus put it another way. Uh, if they reject you, shake the dust off your feet. So they were to physically go outside the city and in view of many residents of the city, they'd shake the dust off their feet. That's what they would do to Gentiles, Jews would do to Gentiles. And Jesus said, do it to Christ rejectors. So some kind of visible pulling back of them, uh, from them, sometimes gets them to swim in it and gets their attention, you know. But I, I, I quit sharing once I find intense rejection like that. Uh, but keep praying. Yeah, good, good question. Are there others? Well, y'all, you've been a great crowd. I appreciate you. Sure do love you. I think the world of you. Let's pray hard for our nation and our election. Let's pray even harder for Sunday. The hope of the world is Jesus Christ, neither of the political candidates, okay? don't have much to choose from this time uh, and all. Um, I won't tell you how I've characterized them but because um, I really don't want to get political. And it won't help anybody to say. But um, anyway, let's pray hard for them and uh, ask God to do a neat work in their lives. Maybe some of them will get saved. I hear one of them has, uh, and I hope that's the case. Um, sometimes it doesn't look like it, but we'll, we'll see. Uh, let's pray for them. Then uh, what we will do is at Tuesday morning of the election, we will gather at 8 o'clock in the conference room to pray uh, for um, uh, the election. And so we'll have a special prayer meeting for the election Tuesday uh, morning. All right? Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity to walk in the Spirit. I thank you that you have told us the truth about this, that we are needy people, uh, that we um, have so much within us that would hinder his work, and that really our knowledge on its own is not adequate to walk with him. So, Lord, because that's true, I do pray that you would lead us. And I want to ask for a gentle leading. I don't want to ask anything to happen to any of us, but I want to pray that you would give us uh, the opportunity to depend on him and gently lead us to that portion. Now, do whatever it takes for us to depend. I don't want to hinder you with my prayers, but I do want to ask you to come through, uh, God. And as a father, lead us to a place of dependence. Lead us also to a place of transparency. What a blessing it is to get honest before God and to trust him with all of our sorrows and cares and anxieties. 
And then, Lord, I want to pray that you'd help us to master the discipline of getting into your word and help us to care about these things and shape our thinking the same way Jesus did in your word. And we pray that you would make our church then a church that walks in the spirit of God as spiritual people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you.